All right. Well, thank you're you. going to give me questions, huh? Yeah, so we're going to transition here now to just this third part of our program is we'd like to hear some questions from all of you. And so you should have had a pencil and a note card that you were given when you got here. And what we're going to ask you to do is to just write down a question if you have it. And if you could pass it down to the end of the aisle, we'll collect them. And then we will gather uh, here to respond to those questions in five minutes. So we invite you to just stay where you are in your seat unless you absolutely have to get oh, up. Good, I can but see. Um, we will resume in five minutes. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. So we've got a number of questions here, Richard, and I'm going to start just with uh, these first two. Lord, help me to answer them and not just talk. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. So in light, in light of all that's happening in the world and the church, what do you see and where do you see signs of hope? You know, Jung says, the greater light you have, the greater shadow you cast. And certainly the shadow today is mammoth. The, the capacity of human beings for dark deeds and untruth and conspiracy and hatred and violence. But um, I meet people like this everywhere who clearly are in the early stages of going somewhere else. Um, I guess I should have called it third-way thinking. Some do. Uh, where I don't let myself be sucked into these either-ors anymore. And there's a lot of people like that. Um, Pope Francis being one of them, you know, and he's being hated for it. For, because people are more comfortable with the other. But there's uh, just all the organizations, which for the most part aren't overtly religious, but working for clean water in Nicaragua, let's say, you know, are working for immigrants on our border. Uh, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And um, that's hopeful. That's the body of Christ at work. So. Please don't doubt that that's out there. It is. In, in rather great numbers. It's just the mass media. Remember, the uh, uh, Velcro were much more attracted to the negative. I mean, that was just exposed in Facebook. You say something hateful and everybody buys into it. Uh, but there's a lot of people who have learned how to resist it. And uh, those are the what Merton used to call the masked contemplatives. They would never call themselves contemplatives. And I bet there's a lot of you in this room tonight. You're just naturally peacemakers, forgivers. I don't need to be right, you know. Don't need to defeat your enemies. That all comes from the Holy Spirit. That's a gift of God. So there's a lot of you, I promise you. They really are. Yeah. Richard, another question we have here is, it says, can you speak a little bit about the connection between contemplation and action? We've tried to do that for 34 years. <laughs> uh, 
it should be obvious, you know, almost, I'm sure there's a lot of religious out here tonight. Most religious orders said we're both. We try to put the two together. In activist America, what usually one was service and action, and we're grateful for that. But what lost was the contemplative. And part of the reason for that, when I gave the retreat at Gethsemane in 1985, uh, I, uh, I won't tell you the whole thing. I've told it too many times, but I, I thought the way I'd gain the monk's trust would be to quote the man himself, quote Thomas Merton. And instead I heard growls <laughs> and shuffling. And uh, I asked Brother Bruno, who was a friend of mine, what's going on there? He said, well, Merton told us we weren't contemplatives. Well, that's an insulting thing to say to his own community of contemplatives. <laughs> he pulled back the veil on this whole thing. Now listen closely. Here's what he said. He said, you're not contemplatives. You're just introverts. <laughs> Got it? What happened in the Western church is we lost the art of teaching the non-dual mind because it does have to be taught anymore. It doesn't come to Western people naturally. And uh, what we thought uh, were holy people, even in the religious orders, were the quiet nuns, the quiet friars and priests, you know. And sometimes they were very hateful people. They were just quiet about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, not very often, but now, now and then, you know. Uh, just liking to be quiet does not make you a contemplative. Liking to spend hours in chapel. I use, uh, always say for those of you who know the Enneagram, they're just fives on the Enneagram. Fives like to be quiet as much as possible. You know, it's good. But it, it, it's their temperament. It isn't really a contemplative prayer. So that's what lost out in the West. And um, we, when one side loses out almost entirely, how can you possibly put them together? Now, once we're, we've begun to recover the two, uh, our, uh, the contemplative mind, you see more and more people learning how to serve from a centered heart, a centered mind. It's not the monkey mind jumping around from moment to moment. So you've got to center each day and find out who you are. We call that descending into the heart or descending into the soul where you've got a solid base where you can live in confidence. Now, once you learn to do that, it becomes your, your home base. And then it's natural to act, but your heart is rooted in God. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> rooted in the holy, rooted in the non-need to look wonderful or the non-need to succeed. Uh, it just isn't your primary concern. 
Your primary concern, frankly, is to do it for love. It is. You know, I'm just quoting every saint we've ever canonized. (laughs) And once you learn to uh, abide in love, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit, and draw your source daily from that point, there will be a different character to your doing. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Let me uh, Go just pivot a little bit in a different direction here. And there's another <coughs> questions here that have to do with your own personal life and your own personal journey. So one question here is, is how did you know when or what God was calling you to do? Well, I have no heroic answer to that. I was raised in Kansas, right next to Dorothy, <laughs> in a very conservative German Catholic farm family. We were all Democrats and we were all Catholic uh, in a Protestant Republican state. So that held us together very well, you know. Uh, We were the opposition or the alternative. So I had several, actually. I know I'm speaking for many of you. Had some wonderful experiences of God as a little boy, a very little boy. We're just all was good, and I was good, and I, I stood in wonder, and reality was good. Uh, and I knew I had been let in on a secret. So in, given that, in, in the 1950s, there was nothing else to be but a priest, you understand? There were no other options <laughs> that allowed you to take that seriously. Now that's all changing. And most of us are working for uh, lay spirituality because that's how most people have to live their lives with children, with marriages, and so forth. But uh, then I had another wonderful experience as a novice, Franciscan novice, at the age of 19. And uh, they built on one another. And I didn't have any apparitions our locutions, it was just an inner knowing, an inner awareness, an inner dialogue that in many ways never stopped because it's the most real thing you've ever experienced and everything else pales into relativity. So I had to be a priest and mother said, my good German housefrau mother. She said, I used to gather, I must have been a terrible little kid. I'd gather the neighborhood kids on a bench in the backyard. This is before I could read. And I'd hold the Baltimore Catechism, horrible little document, really. (laughs) I'd hold it upside down and teach the neighborhood kids about Jesus. So this stuff was in my blood from the beginning. I mean, I didn't know I did that, but mom and dad said, oh, yeah, you did. We were a little embarrassed by it. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I pretty much knew from the beginning that I had to be a priest. And then once you read A Life of St. Francis, I dare to say this, but uh, someone said, everybody first 
wants to be a Franciscan. And what they meant by that is the romance, the idealism, the beauty-centeredness, the earth-centeredness of Franciscan spirituality is so compelling to a young romantic, at least. Uh, Thank God we're not all that way, but we have Holy Cross Fathers and (laughs) we have Jesuits and we have Dominicans and Benedictines. And we have lay people who are 99%. (laughs) So I always knew, I always knew I had to do this. So when you went along, another question uh, talks about uh, what what kinds of practices you do that helps you develop the contemplative mind. Well, uh, in the Franciscan order, uh, you first got to prove you can live in community, that you can serve other people, love other people, forgive other people, make way for other people. And I guess I paid my dues there. I Certainly, I lived the first half of my life almost in community, in formation, and then my first years as a priest. But then I asked my provincial at a certain point, could I play the hermit? I said, there is so much happening in here. That's when the book started. Uh that I just need more hours of silence each day to just process what's happening, what's reality saying to me. And um, so I still try in each day to preserve at least a good chunk of silence. I have a dog, and the Mexicans come to my door ever so often. Father, Father, Padre. Uh, but they're another source of conversion because they tend to be so humble, very humble. And um, But I do protect. Now, on weekdays, we start with the staff 20 minutes, you know, so they hold me to it. Uh, but on days when that doesn't happen or weekends, I just try to make sure there's a big chunk of time in which I don't turn on CNN or don't turn, even turn on music. I've learned to like silence even more than music. So that's my primary practice, silence. And then when we have a structured together experience, I do what's akin to Thomas Keating's centering prayer. Either the letting go exercise, letting go of monkey mind as it imposes itself, or the uh, replacement therapy of Lawrence Freeman and John Main, where you uh, replace an especially obsessive thought with uh, your holy word. Now, you all have to discover your holy word. It's in you, a word that just in its very speaking settles you, grounds you. Uh, You'll find it. You know it. It doesn't have to be Jesus. Uh, You'll know what it is when you hear it. Uh, Yeah. So, Richard, here's a particularly fun question. How might we integrate non-dual thinking within institutions? the Catholic Church, 
the United States of America and places like Notre Dame. (laughs) You know, maybe now is the time to read that second poem. Because I don't have an answer, you know. <laughs> this is from a poet, Boris Novak. One of our staff uh, gave it to me last week. Listen closely. It might take two readings. It's not that long. Between two words, choose the quieter one. Between word and silence, Choose listening. Between two books, choose the dustier one. Very cleverly put. Between the earth and the sky, choose the birds where they live. We have wonderful birds in New Mexico. They're flying down the Rio Grande to Mexico now. Between two animals, choose the one who needs you more. Opie's, that's my dog. He's probably depressed tonight. (laughs) Because like all of you, I didn't travel for a year and a half, you know. Now suddenly I'm gone. Between two animals, choose the one who needs you more. Between two children, this is good, choose both. Between the lesser and the bigger evil, choose neither. Between hope and despair, choose hope. It will be harder to carry. Mm. That's probably why Jesus said his cross would be heavy. Hope is hard to carry. Um, So... Thank you for the wise question. How do we move this to the structural level? There's people trying it. You know, in the, believe it or not, in the economic world, uh, Michael is very fascinated by that. Teachers like Lynn Twist and what's the man with the German name, Michael? Eisenstein, yeah. First name? Charles, Charles Eisenstein. I mean, uh, the, in my opinion, the, the two fields that were most unconverted by the gospel, unintegrated with the gospel, are money and sex. They were allowed to live independently out here uh, on their own, and therefore they're, they're the most out of order in so many people's lives. Because we don't know how to integrate toward healthy sexuality and a healthy use of money. Uh, We're all capitalists. Not that that's evil. But, you know, the last four popes have spoken of capitalism needing to be be critiqued just as much as communism. Uh, But we don't think that way very much. So... um, well, the, the beauty of your question, I, I've got a little book, What Do We Do About Evil? And that's what you're saying. And when I was studying uh, moral theology, we were told there are three sources of evil. 
the world, the flesh, and the devil. And my professor would always step in and say, in that order, the first was the world. That systemic evil preceded individual evil. The reason any of you, I hope you're not, but any of you can be racist is only if you live in a racist family and a racist South Bend, let's say. I'm not saying that's true. But it first has to become legitimated at the social level. And once it's legitimated at the social level, you can do it with impunity. Pick any of the seven capital sins. It's true of all of them. Now, just hearing that, I encourage you to go back to the teaching of Jesus and see how he hardly ever, if ever, condemns uh, an individual. The flesh, that's the second level. The world. Remember how often he says, you Capernaum, you Bethsaida, you Jerusalem. He condemns the collective. I mean, it's only the last 20 years that Catholics have begun to rethink that way. That collective evil is where evil resides, where we don't see it as evil. Greed is good in America. Let's be honest. Save it, save it, save it, save it. I know there are some people out here who work in development, and they're telling you, give it away, give it away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Charles Eisen. I think it's give it to Notre Dame. (laughs) There you go, give it to Notre Dame. Charles Eisenstein teaches uh, gift economy. Doesn't he use that term, Michael? Yeah. And I thought, oh, how are we ever going to train people to think of their life as a gift and to be given away as much as it was given to them? And then when I read people's descriptions of gift economy, I realized that was the first 15 years of my life. My parents did all the giving. And I just received, received, received. Uh, You all, if you had a half-decent family, you began your life with a gift economy. You understand? And so that should be the base. The market economy, where you got to balance giving and receiving I mean, you know the parables where Jesus says, that's not true. I'm going to give the man who come at the last hour the same as the man who came at the first hour. And most Catholics do not like that parable. (laughs) They don't even agree with it. Well, this is one case where Jesus must be wrong. (laughs) I don't think so. He lives out of a gift economy, not market economy. So, um... Did I answer any question there? Uh, no. I'm not sure, but um, I'm actually uh, going to... You're so kind to me. We, <laughs> Thank you. We're in our last few minutes, but I'd actually like to reserve the right to ask just two final questions. And, um, you know, you've written so much. So many people out here have listened to your tapes. They've read your books. Uh, it's amazing how many things you've published. But if you could send one text message to the world, what would you say? To the whole world.
in the end, it will be good. That would be it. I'm a believer in resurrection. <laughs> in the end, it will be good. That was, it was better said in a recent movie. Some of you remember it. The Marigold Hotel. What did they say? In the end... Oh, it doesn't matter. That's right. But... <laughs> Something like that. Something yeah, like yeah, that, like yeah. That. In the end, it will be good. Well, the last question I'd like to ask, one of the things we do in a class I teach is we actually go out to the cemetery. Mm. And we have people walk around the cemetery and think about their own mortality and to look at the tombstones that are there and to think about the life they've lived and how they want to be remembered. So we're very grateful that you've come here because we know that you're not even traveling anymore, but you've come here to, to really share with us the wisdom of your life and to spend this evening with us. I'd just like to ask when the last chapter of your life is written, how do you want to be remembered? Hmm. Well, I hope I don't try too hard to be remembered in any certain way. You know, uh, I, I, one thing I know uh, at this point, maybe this is the line. It's not about me. I'm about life. Life is not about me. I'm one instance of what is everywhere happening. But at a Dominican gathering last year, I, I, they asked me a similar question. And I said, if you want to put a, a line on my tombstone, it would be this. And I mean it, every word of it. God allowed me to do everything wrong. All Ten Commandments, all three vows, I didn't do any of them right. God allowed me to do everything wrong so he could do everything, not that God's a he, but so God could do everything right. Let me repeat it. God allowed me to do everything wrong so God could do everything right. In me, through me, in spite of me, you know, with little cooperation. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, you know, that's, well, Therese of Lisieux, the little flower. You all know her, don't you? That's, she taught it way before I did. She called it her little way. That we come to God more by doing it wrong than by doing it right. Trust me, that's true. Doing it right teaches you nothing. Nothing. It might make some other people feel good. Doing it wrong, if you allow it, teaches you most things that you need to learn. So I've done them all. And... Uh, it's all been mercy, as Merton said, mercy within mercy within mercy. Amen. Good night. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.